You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Netflix, a story of subscriber growth and succession. We dig into the earnings and the executive changes as we learn Reed Hastings will step down as, co- as CEO. Plus, emails from Elon Musk shed light on his involvement in a 2016 demo that exaggerated autopilot capabilities. Plus, the hacks to stop hackers taking your money, and they're working. New research shows that fewer companies are paying ransoms. That doesn't mean the number of attacks is actually down. We're going to discuss that, but first, let's dig in on all of that, because it's interesting we're getting succession planning and a chairman remaining over at Texas Instruments, and similar for Netflix. Succession planning, unlike over at Disney, many would argue. It's interesting, therefore, to bring on Lucas Shaw, who so intimately understands this company and, indeed, the inner workings of Reed Hastings. He himself, of course, a man who's focused on culture in so many ways, Lucas. What do you make of who now steps up, Greg taking the co-CEO reins, and ultimately, who's going to have the ultimate decision-making power here? Because he remains as executive chairman. Yeah, look, my assumption is that, that Reed will say that that Ted and Greg get ultimate authority. They are now the CEO. Obviously, as chairman of the board, as co-founder, as a major shareholder, if there were some you know, huge transaction, Netflix decided to sell itself, buy something significant, I imagine Reed would get, would get more involved. But he has been gradually stepping back from the day-to-day operations of the company already. You know, He delegated most of the Hollywood stuff to, to Ted. He's put Greg in charge of these two big initiatives, advertising and password sharing. And I think that that's how the company is mostly going to keep operating with sort of Greg, Greg looking at a lot of the kind of product and strategic fit, Ted looking at a lot of the, uh, you know, the more entertainment focused and programming operations. Hey, Lucas, let's think about the forward-looking nature of this, you know, because Greg Peters kind of was already leading the charge on the ad-supported tier, already leading the charge on the crackdown for password sharing. Ted Sarandos, the man about Hollywood, doing the deals, thinking about content. Given the numbers we just got, which were strong beats, right, subscribers and on the, uh, the top line, I suppose, bottom line a bit weaker, where will they focus their energies going forward for 2023? 
You know, it's going to be continued execution on advertising because remember that that ad tier is only two months old, so that'll be kind of improving some of the technology behind it. Uh, you know, targeting sales. You know, it got off to a relatively slow start, but I think they like what they're seeing. It'll be rolling out this whole password crackdown, which I think is going to start this quarter and really ramp up in the middle of the year. Um, it's going to be kind of continuing to try to improve programming in certain areas. You know, they've they've done really well recently on English language television programming, not quite as well on the foreign language television programming. I think they want to keep improving their hit rate on movies because they release a lot of movies people don't, you know, you know, don't watch. And then there's a whole gaming piece of it, which is still a small part of the business, uh, but they're investing a lot of money into it. I don't think you're going to see a ton of news around that in 23, but it is something that they will continue to talk about as of the future. The one point I do want to make is while they had a really strong final quarter of the year, at least in terms of subscriber growth, the thing to keep in mind, just sort of big picture, is that for the full year, they did still post their worst subscriber growth since 2011. All right, Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw, great reporting on what's changing at Netflix and good analysis of the numbers, which I think we need more of. So let's bring in Brandon Katz, uh, industry analyst at Para Analytics. Uh, it's interesting, the third-party data suggested that actually in the final three months of last year, Netflix is facing greater competition from the likes of Warner Discovery and Disney, and actually demand overall is starting to pull back. Well, when you saw those uh, net subscriber ads for Netflix, 7.7 .7 million, what's your reaction, Brandon? I'm still not totally surprised. I mean, Netflix has always been savvy with its guidance. It likes to set the stage for positive narratives, which we are now uh, very much engaging in. And we look at Netflix from our angle. It is still the streaming industry leader. It's the most global surprise yeah. subscribers. It is the most in-demand overall catalog with U.S. audiences in all of 2022. And that includes original and licensed movies and TV shows. It also still leads the entire industry in global original demand and U.S. original demand. So, yes, that is shrinking as it seeds ground to, you know, very hungry competitors that are gaining market share, but they still have a massive, massive lead. And I think all the doom and gloom around Netflix last April, perhaps a bit premature as we're seeing now, even with what Lucas accurately pointed out, their lowest subscriber total in a year since 2011. Lucas, at the end of his Bloomberg News report, uh, summed up the comments about the ad-supported tier. And they were a little bit muted from Netflix. They're pleased with the progress on the ad-supported tier. They're saying that it's bringing in cost-conscious consumers. Do you think that that was part of the beat when it came to subscriber growth in the last three months of last year? Yeah, and they even pointed out in their letter to shareholders that they aren't seeing a lot of conversions from premium subscriptions to ad tiers, which is exactly what they wanted. They want the ad tier to expand the total addressable market for Netflix, and particularly at a time when consumers are weighing concession fears and maybe a recession fears and maybe a little bit more cost conscious. Now, yes. Not the fastest, most explosive rollout, but this is going to be a must-have for all advertisers looking to get into connected TVs and digital TVs. So we are going to see that grow throughout uh, 2023. And we got to remember, they turned around from years of an anti-ad stance and created their ads here in only six months. So there is a lot of upward potential and room to grow here. Yeah, interesting. In that earnings statement, they said the early results, they say they're pleased with but there's much still to do. 
Can you, Brandon, in any way talk about sort of the culture of innovation over at Netflix? Because that is, of course, what we've come to know, having read the No Rules Rules book by Reed Hastings himself. I mean, it's all about the way in which they set a part of different corporate culture. Now, it's interesting to compare, shall we say, succession planning with Disney Plus versus Netflix, and they're kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum. But we are seeing Disney Plus and Warner Brothers Discovery taking chunks potentially out of market share from Netflix. How can Netflix ensure that it's standing in good stead to keep on growing, keep on innovating, keep on personalizing. It's funny because Netflix has always fancied itself as the greatest disruptor in Hollywood history, but now it's really reached a point where it is recreating the playbook of its linear rivals instead of vice versa. So the market emphasis has shifted, obviously, towards profit and revenue, which they are clearly uh, emphasizing, and their strategy and public narrative has followed suit. So clearly they are adjusting to the times and frankly they're in a better financial situation than every other major streamer they're the only one really that's profitable at the moment with disney plus hbo max paramount plus and peacock all looking at 2024 or beyond to finally get into black but in terms of continuing to grow they're really really going to emphasize not only the ads here as a more cost effective alternative to cost conscious consumers not only password sharing where if they convert just 10 percent of the uh, 100 million or so password shares, that's 10 million new subs, but they also want to continue investing in non-English content and create not just mm. regional hits that resonate with uh, the Latin American market or Asia Pacific, but that travel globally. And we're seeing that steadily increase in frequency over the past several quarters. Yeah, really interesting to bring up the global perspective of this business. And I think what's really interesting is the way in which investors have started to buy in. Ed, it was you that was on Twitter just saying, what well, we're off more than 90% right. up from the lows that Netflix the share price had hit, analysts looking more, far more on the buy side than they are on the sell side in terms of ratings. Brandon, from your geographical perspective, which levers can they pull? Where's going to be growing the most at the moment? Is it LATAM? Is it Asia vis-a-vis -vis US, Europe? Yeah, I mean, Netflix has years-long unrivaled investments in overseas content regions, so they really do have a lead on the competition in that regard. Asia-Pacific has been their biggest growth arena over the last five or six corner quarters, so they're going to continue to hyper-focus on that. Obviously, we've seen South Korea become a major international hub for content, both as regional hits and hits that can hopefully translate to the domestic audience as well. And then there's the, the big white whale of streaming. Everyone is trying to crack the code in India. Now, Netflix has gotten off to a slow start there. They're behind Amazon and Disney Plus in terms of market share, but they continue to experiment with mobile-only plans, with six-month and annual plans that offer discounts, and they continue to invest in original content that covers a variety of regional dialects. So they are going to hyper-focus on, on that area while still serving the areas that have proved to be fruitful to them, such as Latin America. All right, Parrot Analytics, industry analyst Brandon Katz, I think we're going to have this conversation about the future of Netflix for many weeks to come. Thank you so much for joining the program. I want to bring a quick correction to our audience, Caroline, because earlier we showed a board of the share price of AT&T in After Hours when we meant to show T-Mobile, which has disclosed it will take a significant charge from a cybersecurity vulnerability that it disclosed in a regulatory filing after the market closed. You can see on your screen T-Mobile down 1.5%. I got my blue Bloomberg Terminal in front of me, and I can confirm it's down 1.5% in after hours. We'll continue to track that story.
Now, coming up, some emails shedding light on Elon Musk's involvement in a 2016 demo. What does that mean for the EV maker? Could it face probes? How does it market its technology? We'll discuss all of that next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. Quite the scoop coming from Bloomberg News today. Elon Musk oversaw the creation of a 2016 video that exaggerated the abilities of Tesla's driver assistance system called Autopilot. He even dictated the opening text that was claiming the company's car drove itself. This is all according to internal emails viewed by Bloomberg. Our own Dana Hull is here to join us and discuss your scoop, Dana. And it's extraordinary, really, the relevancy that this still has, because, what, six years on, we're still debating whether autopilot is really what it says it is. Yeah, and this is pretty extraordinary. I mean, this video that I'm referring to is still on Tesla's website. It's a pretty seminal video in the history of the company. It is this, you know, great video set to the tune of the Rolling Stones song, um, Paint It Black. It's still on Tesla's website, and it purports that this car is driving itself and that the only reason why a driver is in the car is for legal reasons. But what we learned via these emails and via a deposition that we got a hold of this week uh, is that, you know, Musk really oversaw the production of this video and Dozens of Tesla staffers were involved, and Musk himself wrote that language that you see when the video first starts playing. I want to go back to the basics of this story, because uh, it's important. So we're talking about some emails that Elon Musk sent to quite a large group of the autopilot team. We have some of it that we can bring up that I'll read to you. Since this is a demo, it is fine to hardcore code some of it, since we will backfill with production code later in an OTA update, OTA over the air update. What is Elon Musk talking about here? So this was so the first email that we got is an email that went out to the entire autopilot team in uh, mid-October 2016. And he's basically like all hands on deck for this demo. And he's basically saying, don't worry, like we're going to continue to work on this code. We're going to continue to refine it through over the air updates. And over the air updates is something that, that Tesla regularly does. But what's important is that nine days later, 
he, in, the, in a second email, he's basically like, this is the language that I want in the video. And the language is basically ultimately saying, this is going to drive itself. I, I'm telling you where we are going to be rather than where we are in this here and now. The here and now, Dana, is also that there's loads of probes into autopilot, right, from various authorities in the US. Yeah, so this is, a th this is the thing that I think will be interesting to watch going forward. You have sort of two simultaneous things happening. The first is families of drivers that died in crashes where autopilot was engaged or may have been engaged are suing the company. I mean, there are several civil cases ongoing, including uh, the case of Walter Huang, which is uh, here in the Bay Area, and that trial begins in March. And then secondly, you have, you know, NHTSA and the California Department of Motor Vehicles looking, you know, autopilot kind of on two fronts both the technology itself as well as how it was marketed to customers. And, you know, bureaucracy moves very slowly. Mm. Uh, I don't know what the latest is on those investigations, but this is technology that has been, you know, under scrutiny for quite some time now. And I think what's what's relevant is that, okay, yes, we got emails that are frankly six years old, but they, are, they show just how heavily involved Musk himself was in the creation of the video, the production of the video, and what the language of the video was going to say. All right, Bloomberg's Dana Hole, just terrific reporting alongside Sean O'Kane, who's out in Austin. Thank you so much. Just a few years ago, people were writing stories about how this is stigmatized and how people should not talk to AI and this is creepy and strange. Now, this is not a question anymore. But again, now the question, is it okay to have an AI girlfriend? Is it okay to have that outlet? Eugenia Kuda, CEO of the AI chatbot Repl Replica, which we spoke to last week. And now let's bring in Andrew Strait for more context on all of this, because he's an associate director of emerging technology and industry practice over at the Ada Lovelace Institute in London, focusing on research, on policy, on practice, to basically ensure, Andrew, that data and AI work for people, work for society. But what's so fascinating about your background is you've long worked in AI ethics. You've long worked in content moderation. You worked at DeepMind, such a standout AI performer over in the UK and which is ultimately bought by Alphabet's Google. Talk to us about when we're thinking of ChatGPT, when we're thinking of Replica and all the innovations around chatbots and AI. Are we up to speed with the ethical ramifications here? It's a very good question. I, I would say that in general, we have continued to not do the best of jobs of communicating the limitations and risks these kinds of technologies can raise people in society. Um, these are very exciting technologies. I think there's no doubt to say that uh, generative models are raising all kinds of, of exciting applications from poem writing to code generation, but they are not magic. They're built on um, a hidden uh, um, uh, a process of labor that are oftentimes relying on exploited and underpaid workers, uh, and they can have very serious impacts on people in society that need to be better communicated. So it's critical that as developers of these technologies, as policymakers, that we create the conditions for these technologies to be uh, beneficial to people in society. That's something we certainly can see these tech, these tech companies doing a bit more of. Yeah, it feels like OpenAI, for example, which is behind ChatGPT, is very much trying to have the narrative of how do we ethically introduce this? How do we ensure that it's iterating at a safe pace? But what more can be done? Where in the world, for example, is working well with private, with public, with academics, with governments, for example? 
It's a very good question. Um, one thing I think that we can see more of is uh, initial consideration of the potential uses or misuses of these technologies and building in safeguards that are meaningful to prevent those misuses. So to give OpenAI credit, they, when they released ChatGPT, they were very careful to put in place safeguards to prevent certain types of toxic or harmful content um, or dangerous content from being um, shared. But as you can see, these, these kinds of, of safeguards could very quickly be overcome um, if you typed in the appropriate response, you could get ChatGPT to give you instructions now to make a Molotov cocktail or how to hotwire a car. Um, and even more concerning is that it's not just a story of ChatGPT. Um, even if ChatGPT and, and OpenAI put in these kinds of, of safeguards, other types of, of companies doing creating generative models may not do the same. So I think a few things are needed. One is there needs to be more cross-industry collaboration, communication, and discussion about the kinds of risks these technologies pose. There needs to be more discussion and, and clarity of the kinds of standards that need to be met in order for these technologies to be released safely. And there also needs to be a bit more clarification and communication with members of the public about those impacts. Um, I'm thinking particularly there of educators and creators who are most impacted by these technologies at the moment. And lastly, we need really strong and stringent regulation. We do a lot of public attitude surveying and research in our, in our institute, and one of the most clear messages that comes across is people want regulation for AI, they want to feel safe, they want to have some sense that government has a grip on these technologies right. and is putting in place the right safeguards to keep them, keep them safe. Andrew, the big news headline that, that I saw on Thursday today in the world of AI was the FBI director, Christopher Wray, saying he's deeply concerned about China's research in the field of AI and, it, and its AI program and what it might use AI for. An independent research group like yours, do you see what China's doing in the field of AI as a worry? I think what the FBI are talking about here and broadly what others have talked about is the military applications of AI that could pose a threat to, to society. It's a it's a um, concerning development, certainly, whenever um, you are kind of rushing into the use of AI for military and autonomous weapons. But it's important to acknowledge that's not simply a China problem. Um, many militaries around the world are, are developing these kinds of technologies, again, oftentimes without much consideration for the kinds of race dynamics that doing so can create between other countries. So in the UK, in the US, um, in, in other parts of the world, these kinds of, of autonomous weapon systems are being developed. There are, I, as I understand it, some, some excellent work being done to develop ethical codes of practice yes. by groups like the Ministry of Defense. But it is important to acknowledge that those are, are not risks unique to China, that those are very serious ethical and legal considerations that need to be um, seriously considered and addressed on the international level. All right, Andrew Strait, Associate Director of Emerging Technology and Industry Practice at the Ada Lovelace Institute. Thank you for staying up so late for us. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow back in San Francisco. And let's get straight back to the Netflix news and the future of the company and Reed Hastings. And bring in John Klein, the CEO of Hang and a former president of CNN. Let's be honest while we've got you on the show. You know this industry. You know the names in the industry. There was a big stock reaction to the news that Reed Hastings would step back as co-CEO, go to the executive chair position. Greg Peters, a name well known, steps up to co-CEO. Um, what do you make of all of it? Is this an example of good succession planning? Well, at first blush, it feels like the opposite of the Bob Iger situation, where he decided to dive back into a horribly messy 
macro environment in the hope of fixing it, uh, whereas Reed looks like he is stepping back a little bit. But then as you think about it a little further, you know, an executive chairman is very different than a non-executive chairman. Executive chairman sort of says, I still have to clear everything if I want to. I've still got an office right there, and, I, and you're going to see me all the time. Plus the fact that they brought in a co-CEO still. I thought when they elevated Ted Sarandos to co-CEO that that was the sign that he was the success. So imagine now the idea that he was not the successor. And in fact, he sort of hemmed in on both sides. I don't know how that's going to play out. I don't know any of the psychology involved uh, among these people, um, but I just wonder how that's going to play out. John, you've led sort of legacy traditional media companies. You've led digital media companies. Um, where does Netflix sit right now for you in, I guess, the leadership of this growing and increasingly competitive field? You know, Disney, Warner Brother, Discovery, the data shows they're growing. They're also considering whether they aggressively spend, whether they pull back. You know, is Netflix a healthy company despite kind of the shakeup they've had at management? Well, Netflix transformed the entire media industry, not so much by the content choices they made, but by deploying AI data crunching to better understand what content they ought to make and how to market it. So they belong in the Hall of Fame for that. But I think everybody's ignoring TikTok. Mm. TikTok has passed Netflix as the number two streaming choice for U.S. audiences under 35. And that is huge. Gen Z is, is, is part of a, a, they are a tsunami. And they're making their choices with short form video that doesn't cost barely anything. And, and meantime, everybody's obsessing over Netflix subscriber growth, but the, 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 the people are voting with their, with their swipey fingers. And you know, I run a Gen Z platform, Hang enables fans to watch sports on TV alongside athletes and entertainers and celebrities. And we spend next to nothing on content, but we've grown 1,000x primarily with Gen Z users because they care about the immediate, they care about meaningful moments, and they want to be able to dip in and out whenever they feel like it. That's very different than the uh, beautifully constructed content yeah. models that all the streaming, the traditional streaming platforms are using. So I think everybody's ignoring the the TikTok elephant in the room. I think that's really interesting to bring that on, John, because I always remember the surprising competitor that Netflix used to reference was gaming and really felt that that was where the eyeballs were. And they're, of course, now setting up their own sort of gaming focus. You're saying, look, it's actually really social media, but this new generation of social media. And, John, to that point, let's talk about culture for a minute, because you're someone who's had to think about this long and hard, whether you've been in the original media, the CNN roles, whether you're now with Hang and thinking about cultivating that, that innovative style. And, and that's really really also what Reed Hastings was known for, was shaking things up when it comes to a corporate culture, when it comes to reinventing the way in which people have responsibility, but also freedom. Are they able to innovate? Are they innovate? Are they able to take over and take on the likes of TikTok and their other competitors at the space with this new leadership, do you think? It's very, very difficult for established incumbents to, to change a culture, but we've seen it happen at Microsoft and you know, here they are, still players, and, and so it can be done. But it's a big mission. 
It's a little harder to do with three people at the top, which is what Netflix now has. And, and maybe I'm a little colored by the fact that I am the media consultant for the show Succession, uh, where it's always uh, some sort of diabolical underhanded goings on in the corporate suite and the living room. Uh, but I, it just looks to me, you know, culture starts at the very top. That's how cultures are set. That's a big mm. part of why I think Iger came back in, because he was one man who one person who who created the culture and can enforce it um, trickier when you've got three, especially when you've got the founder of the company still there. You know, when I ran CNN, Ted Turner had not been there for a good 10 years mm. and it would have been kind of awkward for the management to make decisions with the founder still sitting there. Yeah. He had the good grace to to exit. A, a lot of CEOs and founders realize that it's time to move on. When, you know, when you're done, you're done. I'm not sure how this is going to play out. Interesting you talk about, and it's such a question of corporate governance. It's also a question of bench now. And Bella Bajaria, that was an interesting move, that now she takes the role of chief content officer, having been heading up the global TV side of Netflix. Content is king, we all know that. So from your perspective, what are the innovative ways she can think about content? Is she going to have to start to think about how she keeps people glued amid the distraction of social media? Well, you know, they're they're lucky at Netflix, and I, I guess I shouldn't say lucky because it was on purpose. They have built an incredible data capture and analytics engine that eliminates the gut instinct of executives, which are so often wrong. They're usually wrong. Look at how many new shows are launched on a TV season versus how many last even a month. Um, and, and I think what she's probably doing, even as we speak, is doubling down on drilling into those thousands of different taste clusters that tell them what you like to watch versus what Ed likes to watch versus what 100 other people like to watch. And you're all getting hit with different suggestions and each presented in a different way because they also understand what kind of thumbnail pictures you respond to, what kind of previews and highlights you tend to click on rather than anybody else. So they say everybody gets their own Netflix, and that's true. That's an advantage for Netflix in, in kind of figuring their way through this desert. They've doubled down on the amount of Korean programming that they're buying now. And that's because their algorithms are telling them to do that. So you were just talking a lot about AI. Uh, another way that AI impacts the entertainment industry and, and, and will do even more moving forward is by its ability to make us dumb humans uh, have insights that we never could have achieved on our own. Interesting. All about the tech backbone here and certainly something you're interweaving with Hang. I'm sure, of course, the sports streaming Very venture much. you're now doing. Co-founder, CEO of Hang, John Klein, we thank you so much. Let's pivot here a little bit. Let's talk about... Well, AI, we've already been worrying about its implications for cyber. Let's talk about cyber attacks more generally now. Still a big concern these days. But fewer and fewer companies are actually infected with ransomware than they're actually having to yield to the extortion payments demanded by the hackers. That's according to new research from the blockchain forensics firm Chainalysis. What's the reason behind this? Jackie Coven's with us, head of cyber threat intelligence at Chainalysis. Wonderful, Jackie, to have you right here in the studio. And just talk to us a little bit. Ransomware, well, ransom attacks haven't died down. 
but it feels as though companies have some of the protections in place to stop them having to hand over crypto or whatever they're being asked for? Exactly. It's rare we get a good news story associated <laughs> with ransomware. And so it was encouraging to see our results this year in terms of ransoms being doled out. It has decreased significantly, as much as 40%. However, that's not to say that ransomware attacks are on the decline. They're actually on par or maybe slightly depressed of since last year. So what this means is that victims, representatives of victims and their insurers are deciding not to pay. And that's in part because of concern over sanctions, whether they're paying a sanctioned entity, but also they're better defended, most of them, to be able to recover without having to pay the ransoms. Jackie, I want to go back to some breaking news we got in the last hour or so, which moved markets. T-Mobile has disclosed that a hacker obtained 37 million customer accounts data, but it did not include payment or card information. The company saying that it discovered the hack back on January the 5th. It traced that hack to the source and stopped it within a single day. They're investigating, but saying early indications that this threat was able to obtain the information through a single entry point serving customer data. It did not breach the company systems or network. I'd, I'd ask you please for your reaction to that, you know, in the information that we have. How common is that as a threat that corporate America, global corporates face? Yeah, unfortunately, we do see victims get re-victimized. I believe this is not the first data breach that has affected T-Mobile. And what this goes on to to prove is that the the underground economy that is fueling data breaches, and including ransomware, is still thriving. There are still threat actors out there that are able to sell data for money, whether or not they encrypt the victim systems. And uh, there are vibrant markets selling user credentials for various purposes. And we cannot let our defenses down in 2023, despite the promising news that we we'd uncovered in 2022. Can you tell us about the defenses being used and how we're able to keep up with ransomware with these new threats that corporate America does face and individuals. How's insurance protecting us now? How are we able to ensure that we feel we don't have to cough off the money every time? Well, part of it is that insurance companies are now being more stringent about the companies that they cover. Mm -hmm. And then in order to cover them, they must uh, incur some security practices. They must have backups is, is a big one so that if the systems do go down, that the company can very quickly recover and resume, resume businesses. It's not foolproof. Um, there's no organization or company that is immune, unfortunately. And Companies need to have a plan. What happens if they do get attacked? How are you going to handle it from a legal PR as well as a security standpoint? And go back to the roots of how crypto is involved in all of this, because much of the aggravation from the crypto community is that it's always tarnished with money laundering, speculation, and you know, used for drug money, etc. But the whole beauty of crypto is that you're meant to be able to see where it goes. How much is the washing still happening? How are we able to ensure that the money is moving and, and we're able to see who's actually at the bad act? in front of this. Right. We've actually uh, calculated this year that uh, illicit cryptocurrency use reached an all-time high. However, only 0.24% of all cryptocurrency activity was illicit. Mm. And so while the raw numbers did increase, overall, it is a very small fraction. And we're only able to calculate that because of the transparency of cryptocurrency in the blockchain. And that also enables us to track bad actors, to recover funds, 
to pinpoint which cryptocurrency exchanges are, are rogue or uh, be able to dismantle them like we did uh, like the Bits Lotto exchange yesterday, which is taken down as far as an international action dismantled by international law enforcement agencies. Um, also the Hydra Darknet marketplace, which was taken down. So we're able to have these successes because of the traceability. And it's only a small fraction of the overall cryptocurrency activity today. Jackie, we started the year with a fascinating conversation with Jen Easterly, the director of CISA, and her message at CES was the private sector has to do a lot more, right from when you're designing your product at its origins through to how you conduct business. That's why she was there in Vegas, to kind of get that message then. Do you see the private sector doing enough to ward off the threats that you yourself are warning about? No, I, I really view this year's findings of 2022's ransomware payments on the decline as uh, a representative of public and private sector efforts working together. We have government entities doing takedowns and sanctions. We have private sector partners, insurance companies tightening uh, as far as what they're willing to pay, being uh, adhering to to, uh, sanctions concerns, as well as the research community that is actively finding vulnerabilities in the encryption that these ransomware actors are using. And it really is that fine balance of not vic- um, not pu- penalizing victims, but mm. being able to help them when needed. Um, it, it's, it's been a really phenomenal public and private sector effort, and we rarely get the opportunity to ha- quantify what that impact is. Jackie, great to have you here in the studio. Jackie Coven, Thank you. head of cyber threat intelligence at Chainalysis. Meanwhile, coming up, the tech behind fake meat and why the industry beloved by Silicon Valley's VCs is now fizzling. Mr. Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.
We have got to talk about Bloomberg's Big Take because it is one of the most read across all of our platforms, but it's also about the big fake meat. A few years ago, just remember, lab-made meat seemed poised to upend the world's $1 trillion meat industry, and now it's beginning to look like a fad. Bloomberg's Dina Shanker wrote The Big Take, joining us. And ultimately, this is a technology story. It was an idea that you could use laboratories, you could use innovation to be able to get something that felt and tasted like meat but wasn't, had a better footprint on the environment. Now we're all putting that we hope that maybe actually lab-grown, like from cells meat, is going to be our answer <laughs> because it feels like Beyond Meat, for example, didn't grow in the right way. That's right. Basically, uh, we had these founders come out. Uh, Ethan Brown founded Beyond Meat in 2009, Pat Brown in 2011 with Impossible Foods, and they made these really big promises. Uh, Ethan Brown talked about basically copying the, the structure of meat, but doing it with uh, parts that he extracted from plants. Uh, Pat Brown talked about heme, which uh, is found in large concentrations in, in red meat, and he was going to make it with um, a, a genetically modified yeast and soy, and it would be uh, soy le like hemoglobin, what he called his magic ingredient, and this was going to give his burgers this meaty taste, and um, both companies promised to basically upend, uh, well, Impossible really went out and said they were going to upend animal agriculture. Uh, Ethan Brown's promises were more along the lines of um, saving uh, the world from health and environmental uh, disasters. Small um, promises. Yeah, just just, <laughs> just little things. Um, and that they were going to create products that were so identical to the meat that people love that people would just swap them in um, and sidestep the animal. Um, it really hasn't worked out that way. And I think most people would agree right. that these burgers are... Um, more a lot closer to beef than uh, you know their forebears, um, like uh, say like Morningstar Farms from Kellogg, but they're they're certainly not close enough, and um, meat eaters just aren't that interested. Or as one expert told me, he said they're just not that into it. <laughs> hey Dina, it, you know Ethan Brown likened it to technology doing away with the horse pawn cart, right? That what they were doing in the lab would change what's on our plate, do away with the meat. I guess it's not quite materialised. We ask our own audience, you know, what their attitude is to lab-grown, lab-generated meat. That's the answer. Forty-seven percent of respondents said, "Ooh, no." Uh, does your reporting back up the findings of that poll? What is the attitude of consumers right now? So basically the market for these products is de is declining. Uh, people, um, a lot of people tried them when they first came out. They were really excited about them. Um, and now people are moving away and they're going either to, maybe they, maybe they want to keep their meat consumption down so they're going to something like, say, like lentils or beans. Um, or maybe they uh, are going to chicken, which is less expensive than these products and certainly less expensive than beef. Um, a lot of people try the products once or maybe even twice, but they just don't stick with it. It just does not stay as part of their normal routine. The yeah. people that eat the most of this stuff are vegans and vegetarians who were very much not the target. Interesting. And I have to say, like, from anecdotal evidence, you know, we brought in a lot of Beyond Meat and Impossible into our family home, largely because we've got an au pair who's vegetarian, but also my husband really didn't like the way that milk meat made him feel. He wanted to cut down. But ultimately, they weren't kind of healthy enough. Like, they didn't, it felt like lentils was a better option, ultimately. Are these companies trying to 
uproot themselves? Are they trying to change, to listen to feedback, to innovate that little bit more? Or is it all just going to go quiet? Well, yes, they do. They do talk about more innovation, um, and uh, they constantly release new versions. Um, you know, uh, the Beyond Burger. There's a new Beyond Burger almost every year that they say um, this one's going to be juicier, moister, more meat-like, um, and Impossible also does the same thing. They also say by doing um, some of the improvements, we're also going to make it healthier. But I think for a lot of people, the um, the idea of further processing is sort of antithetical to making it mm. healthier. And so um, that it, they might uh, say lower the calories or lower the sodium, but that doesn't change whether or not it's an ultra-processed food. Dana, such great reporting. Fascinating to see how all the McDonald's deals and this, that, and the other go too. Dina Shanker, thank you. Going viral today is the influx of venture capital money flowing towards social media apps focused on happiness. Take the Berlin-based Slay app, which lets users send anonymous compliments. Just raised $2.6 million. Slay reached number one on the German iOS app store four days after launch. Then there's Gas, an app bought by Discord this week. It's here in the US, and it uses anonymous polling to send compliments and boost confidence of users. These apps, Ed, are just putting kind of a spin on the social media landscape that has kind of been proven to thrive on toxicity. And I think it's going to be so fascinating to see how basically the science of happiness, of kindness, it makes you feel good as well as the other person feel good. And I wonder if advertisers get into that too. Yeah, I mean, Discord's ownership of it is being debated out there, mm. but the data behind this was staggering. So in the month of October, apparently, the app was adding 30,000 new users per hour in October. You know, it's reaching a million. And I think everyone needed some feel good at that time, right, when Twitter was kind of all up in the air. And yeah, an interesting one. As I say, the kids are going to save us. Keep on growing those sorts of happiness and, and positive apps out there. Meanwhile, Ed, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Yeah, so something very special coming up. Friday at noon Eastern, we'll round up the biggest tech news of the week on our weekly Twitter spaces. Caro, we've loved doing this, hosting our biggest names across Bloomberg News, Bloomberg Intelligence. And if you're lucky, if you're lucky this Friday, we will have a special surprise guest in our yeah. Twitter spaces. And yeah, we're going to if, talk a bit of VC, the biggest stories, and let's also I'm, get I'm not promising anything. I'm yeah, not promising anything. Audience. All I'm promising, tune in and you'll find out. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.